So just a remarkable life and career, um, and he worked there um, until his passing and uh, at 73 and was just passionate about the Latino community in Oklahoma and was just instrumental, I think, in, in, in bringing visibility and information to, to the Hispanic community for our state. For the past year, each day has brought new statistics about the number of Oklahomans infected with COVID-19 and those who have died. To date, nearly 8,000 Oklahomans have lost their lives to the pandemic, a staggering toll that will impact our state for years to come. But behind each new death number is a grandfather, a mother, a sister, a cousin, or a friend. Thousands of Oklahoma families have dealt with personal loss that remains painful, even as the pandemic shows signs of subsiding. I'm Ben Felder, and on this week's episode of Listen Frontier, I'm joined by my colleague Cassie McClung to discuss the lives we've lost, including the story of one Oklahoma City man who blazed a trail for Hispanic media in the state. He was, he was really a man of service, and that included serving his family. So if there was something we needed, uh, he was there for it. And if there was something his community needed, he was there for it. Cassie and I also discussed the continued rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine and whether recent trends continued ahead in the right direction. Hi, it's Ben. And before we get started with today's episode, I just want to say thank you for your support of The Frontier. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. And to many of you, thanks for donating. Your support, especially over the last year, has been instrumental in us growing our staff, stepping up our coverage of some of the most important issues in our state, and setting the course forward for continuing to grow our impact and investigative journalism. As a nonprofit news organization, we strongly rely on the support of our readers. You're partners in our effort, and we couldn't do it without you. If you value our journalism but have never donated, I'd invite you to consider. You can visit readfrontier.org, where you'll find a link to donate. Even a recurring donation of $5 or $10 a month goes a long way in supporting our work. Thanks for your continued support of The Frontier. Thank you for being our partners. So Cassie, tell me about Armando Rubio. Sure, so I spoke with um, Armando's son-in-law, John Woods, and before Armando moved to Oklahoma, he registered for the U.S. Army and he was drafted a few months later. Uh, was uh, you know drafted uh, into the Army um, uh, during the Vietnam War and uh, served admirably. And, and one of the things that I think is just an amazing part of his story, he actually went into the army, um, not able to speak English. Uh, so he only spoke Spanish. Um, they, uh, the, the commanding officer at the time asked if there was anyone that did not speak English, but he did not raise his hand because the question was asked in English. And, uh, so he, he didn't know to raise his hand. 
and he befriended a uh, uh, individual um, that was bilingual that helped um, teach him how to speak English uh, as he is in the military. Just out of the army, um, he worked in California, and he came to Oklahoma, and he, you know, he saw this need that there was really no Spanish-speaking media, and you know, like John was telling me, there was no way for Spanish-speaking people to know, like if there's a tornado coming or if, you know, what's going on in the state government. So Armando actually started this radio show. He leased his own radio space and he started pushing out news from his garage. And started a radio station out of his garage and leased, leased, uh, leased space airtime uh, and uh, started the, really the first Spanish-speaking radio program in, in the state. He grew, he grew that a little bit and then finally was able to partner with uh, Ralph, Ralph uh, Tyler with Tyler Media, who saw the need as well, but did not have the expertise as a non-Spanish speaker and uh, brought Armando over to start a full-time you know, radio station, Spanish-speaking radio station in Oklahoma. And it really evolved from there. He, he you know, he mentored dozens, if not hundreds, of journalism students um, and really spoke to the Latino and Hispanic community in Oklahoma City about the importance of education. And he was he was just really involved in his community. He he hosted a show on Telemundo every week, you know, just about important issues in the Oklahoma City community. And I could probably go on and on he had such an interesting and you know full life and he was just you know i i've only heard really really good things about armando and it was great and so inspiring to hear his story yeah definitely and you in your conversation with his son-in-law uh i think you referred to him as you know the you know the, the american success story which i think he was and in a lot of ways he was kind of the oklahoma and here in oklahoma city success story in the sense that he was from California, you know, settled down here because he found it to be maybe a more uh, comfortable place to raise a family, but also a place where you can make your mark. I mean, um, Armando had a, a bit of an entrepreneurial, not just a bit, was, was an entrepreneur and, mm-hmm. um, you know, really built an industry from scratch in, in a community that needed it and in a community where you can kind of make a, you can kind of forge your path a little bit, maybe a little bit easier than, than some other markets. Exactly. He was, you know, he, he was from Mexico, but he um, he really considered himself an Oklahoman. He was so proud, you know, to consider himself an Oklahoman. And he, he like you said, he really made this community like he laid down his roots in this community. And so many people admired him and were helped by him. And he was really it was just it was so um like again, inspiring for me to talk with John and hear Armando's story. And it was a story I wasn't really um, familiar with until I talked to John. So it was, um, you know, it, it was a privilege to write about him. Cassie, I remember a year ago when the pandemic was really starting to first spread in Oklahoma, but we were still really early in the, the number of deaths. Uh, it was just a couple at a time. And I remember you, know, you and I were at the time were doing daily podcasts and we would have conversations about how there's going to be a time later on this year in the next year where 
we'll know people who have lost their lives to this. Um, and it was kind of a sobering reality, but also kind of hard to comprehend at the time. You know, fast forward a year later, many of us have lost family members. I know I have, but also lost people that we just know of in the community. Um, and Armando was not like you, was not a story that I was necessarily really familiar with, but so many people were. And just an example of just the ripple effect of the of the lost lives that we've seen over the past year due to COVID. Right, and I think, you know, we're looking at thousands of Oklahomans have died from COVID-19 and it's still hard to grasp just looking at, you know, right now, a lot of these people, um, you know, I hate to say it, but they, from the outside, they do look like statistics. So I think that's why it's so important to take the time to learn about who these people were and learn about their stories and their families and really make them come to life and illustrate, you know, what the state has lost. Because without, you know, really looking at these people, it, it is just kind of leaving it as a statistic. But for, you know, our family um, and my wife's family, um, he was, he was, that was his priority was his family. Mm -hmm. So he was a, a husband um, to my mother-in-law, Margarita, for 49 years and uh, was a just like, it made it really tough to be a son-in-law because he was the most <laughs> doting, loving father, you know, he would, or husband, he would, you know, make sure her car was filled up with gas and, and she would never have to fill it up herself. He was always about family first. Um, he was the best granddad to my kids. Um, you know, my, uh, he loved them and he loved that role of being a grandpa. One of nearly 8,000 Oklahomans to have died from COVID-19, Armando Rubio passed away on February 18th, 2021. He was 73. So Cassie, we're remembering lives lost at a time when it feels like things are maybe getting better. I know we've seen um, maybe kind of an uptick in cases across the nation, but there still is a lot of hope that that things are improving and maybe by this summer there will be uh, much more of a return to normalcy. You know, where do things stand right now in Oklahoma with COVID cases, but also the continued rollout of the vaccine? Sure. So um, Monday the vaccine is available to everyone 16 and up. So we're pretty much at the point where anyone who wants a vaccine can get a vaccine. I, you know, I was checking on the um, state portal for vaccine um, appointments this morning and there's just hundreds if not thousands of appointments available. So we're really in a stage where we're just, um, the state is just getting as many people vaccinated as possible. You know, Oklahoma has been doing pretty well um, compared to other states with its vaccine rollout. I think there's been, you know, almost 600,000 Oklahomans who, have, who are fully vaccinated. Um, so it's, you know, I think there's the hope out there that life will still be um, slowly get back to normal. I think we'll see masks for a little bit, but I think, you know, in the next few months, I think we're going to see more gatherings, things hopefully start to reopen, um, you know, but I, I do want to note that health experts are still really stressing that people, you know, again, need to be wearing their masks, social distancing where they can, um, 
because they're really trying to prevent another surge from happening. Yeah. And you, you talk about the vaccine rollout, which has been fairly successful so far in Oklahoma. And we've seen the state be one of the top in terms of rate of, of residents getting vaccinated, mm-hmm. um, which is a great thing. And we've seen, you know, there's definitely ways that the state has maybe dropped the ball when it comes to COVID-19. And we're going to talk about one of those here in a few minutes. But, um, you know, even early on, COVID testing was fairly was done fairly well here in Oklahoma compared to a lot of states. And here the vaccine rollout is going out, uh, you know, fairly well. It seems like from a mass distribution and a mass planning perspective, you know, especially with the tests and the vaccine, that Oklahoma has 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 done fairly well. And maybe that's a product of our, you know, disaster response as being something that we're familiar with. And I'm sure part of it is also just you know, the, the smaller population here. Although I would imagine that having large areas of, of or, or large rural areas doesn't make it any easier. It just, at least in those areas, it seems like the state has, has some reason to be, to be praised. I think so. I think, you know, there's been some, um, you know, talented people who have been put in charge of these efforts. The Oklahoma National Guard has been really involved and they I think they've just kind of found the formula that works for Oklahoma. One of the things um, that Oklahoma did with the vaccine rollout that other states didn't is they really opened up, you know, um, the phases quicker than other states. So, you know, some other states might be waiting, okay, we're not going to open the next phase up until everyone over 65 has been vaccinated. But Oklahoma kind of started opening those phases up you know, maybe halfway through one phase. So it's really kept things going. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, the state has done really well and has been really smart with is keeping the distribution going and just getting people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And you say, you know, doing a good job of, of putting the right people in charge. And when I think back over this past year, I, you know, I feel like the state has been, you know, at times quick to make changes, especially early on with people in charge of different aspects. And that has helped whether we're talking about at the health department or with unemployment assistance. Um, and maybe that's a product, I don't know, of, uh, you know, the governor comes from a business background, which some, you know, criticize, but also maybe that makes you a good delegator as well. And, you know, once again, if the governor's listening, and I know he does, I did, you know, don't get too excited. We're going to talk about some, maybe some challenges for the state here in a, a few moments. But it, it like I said, there, there, when we reflect on the past year, there have been some areas where the state, I think, has um, has done a good job uh, with uh, with responding to the to this crisis. When when we talk about the vaccine, you know, obviously the state can only do so much to get the vac- make the vaccine available. It also takes Oklahomans being willing to get it. And so so far, we've seen Oklahomans be rel- relatively mm-hmm. um, receptive. But are do you get the sense that that's going to continue? I mean, are we going to look ahead? in six months from now and see that Oklahoma actually has one of the worst participation rates? Has everyone who wants a vaccine just been the ones to get it? Or, or what kind of sense are you, what are you hearing from, from health officials on that front? Right. And that's a great point. And that's something, you know, I've been watching really carefully. Um, I, I was on a call with health experts um, earlier this week who said they're starting to see signs that uh, maybe people who want the vaccine, it's starting to slow down a little bit. And, you know, um, Deputy Health Commissioner Keith Reed, who has really been spearheading this rollout effort, has kind of said that the state is probably going to have to pivot a little bit with how they reach communities, Um, you know, like maybe taking vaccinations mobile, you know, coming to certain communities and um, 
maybe switching away from the large pod distribution they have been doing and you know just really targeting populations who might not be willing or might not have transportation or a way to get to these vaccination pods so i think moving forward i think time is really going to tell with vaccine hesitancy i think we're going to have a better idea of you know how much hesitancy we have in the state as time goes on but right now it's really hard to say because we just don't have the data to say either way but i do think um, I do think that problem is going to come out a little bit here in the next few weeks or few months. Well, you know, one thing that might help that we saw recently, and I promise, Cassie, it's the last time I'll compliment the governor on this podcast. But, <laughs> um, you know, the governor uh, received his vaccine uh, mm-hmm. on camera. You know, so we learned that he has embraced the vaccine, sees it as safe and is encouraging other Oklahomans to get it. We also learned that it appears that he lifts weights. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, that's probably a pretty important thing, especially in some corners of the state. You know, he, he's very popular in rural communities. We know that in some rural pockets and mm-hmm. also in urban pockets as well. But there's some vaccine skepticism. So probably a pretty important thing that the governor received the vaccine on camera. Right. I thought that was a great call, especially getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I feel like Johnson Johnson, for some reason, has gotten this reputation of not being as good as, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, which is just simply not true. But aside from that, you know, with, you know, Governor Stitt getting the vaccine on camera, making it very public, you know, in a red state, he's a Republican governor, he's conservative. I just think that was really good optics for people who, you know, might be hesitant to get the vaccine and already trust the governor and like how he's responded to the pandemic. I think that, um, you know, might encourage some people who were on the fence to go ahead and get the shot. Okay. Well, so... I told you that we were going to talk about some things where the state is maybe not doing quite as good of a job. And so let's get into that now. You wrote this week that state health officials have been unable to account for more than $20 million in protective equipment spending. So we remember early on during the pandemic, the state, other states were were competing to buy as much PPE as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, $20 million. That seems like a, a lot of equipment that they can't count, account for. Right. So this... Um, audit that came out Tuesday night. There's actually another investigative audit ongoing into the state's PPE spending that will probably come out later this year in the next few months, maybe. Um, but so 20, yeah, like you said, $20.4 million in PPE. The state isn't sure if they ever got it. Um, so there's no record that they got it. No one could really say if whether that it was received. So um, the health department now, um, health commissioner, Dr. Lance Fry told me they're really going through this audit and doing a forensic analysis to see if, did they ever receive this material? You know, where is it? Do they need to work on getting refunds or just trying, you know, they're still trying to get some of this material. So I think time will tell, you know, whether they got part of this PPE that they can't account for or none of it or it's because it's you know it's a significant amount of money um but yeah there there was some issues early on with getting that PPE I know everyone was kind of scrambling this is life-saving equipment um but I think you know especially when that investigative audit comes out we're gonna kind of see a little bit more behind the scenes of how this all unfolded well, just being able to unaccount, I mean, to not be able to look at some kind of database or spreadsheet just seems really 
baffling to me. I mean, I know it's not mm-hmm. the same thing, but, you know, I order a lot of stuff from Amazon and I can go, you know, in a moment I can tell you, have I received this yet? Where is it at? You know, when did I get it? I just, I, you know, I know it's not the same thing, but you would think that when you're dealing with those types of purchases, that there'd be even more records on the matter. Right. So I think part of the cause behind that was a lot of this was paid for through wire payments. And, you know, I, looking through some of the records, it's, it's, it's all very, the whole process of trying to get PPE early on the pandemic was very messy. You know, the state was putting down deposits, they were paying down in full before they ever received the um, equipment or before it was even shipped out, which is not good practice or common practice with buying material from vendors, especially from overseas. And, you know, a lot of this equipment, you know, they would contract or they would pay one vendor and then this vendor would pay another company that was located in, I saw one yesterday that was like in Kuwait. So tracking down some of this might be really challenging, if not impossible. Yeah. Well, we know that during an emergency, I mean, obviously things move a little quicker and mm-hmm. you know, there's bound to be some things that get missed. I, I thought what was interesting is in a response from the governor for your story, you know, he said, hey, we, we appreciate the the audit and we're going to learn mm-hmm. from this, you know, but also acknowledge that, hey, in, in our in our haste to to try to protect Oklahomans, and, you know, maybe we didn't. I think his exact phrase was turn over every rock that we should. Mm-hmm. Right. And I and I hate to put too much opinion in this, but I do think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, early on in the pandemic, the the projected death tolls were just, and they were, they were huge. It was, you know, it was hard to grasp. And I think the state really, I think there was that panic and that urgency there of just getting this equipment and trying to save as many lives as possible. You know, same with the hydroxychloroquine, you know, early on people might thought that would be a good treatment that could prevent death. And I think they were just scrambling and desperate to save as many lives as they possibly could. And sometimes, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but sometimes, you know, like we're seeing now in this story, it didn't turn out so well. Yeah. Well, and we know that from, the, from out of the gate that this administration's focus to respond to the pandemic was not on uh, closing businesses and um, requiring people to stay at home. I mean, the governor did pass some limited measures uh, to close non-essential businesses, but quickly reopened. And so you you also wonder if if the administration know says, hey, if that's not going to be our plan of attack, then we have to really focus on on things like PPE, things on making sure that we're rolling out uh, expansive testing, some of the other areas, mm-hmm. because um, because you know closing down businesses is not going to be one way that we. Uh, that we try to tackle this this pandemic. Right, definitely. That makes sense. Yeah. So I guess they could have been looking at it from the perspective of let's protect the vulnerable populations and, you know, get this protective gear. So that that could have been one approach. Yeah. Well, Cassie, uh, before I let you go, I want to circle back to the vaccine real quick because I want to ask you, so you've, you've received the vaccine, right? I have. I actually got my second dose, um, I think, on Tuesday. On so. Tuesday. Okay. And which which one did you get? I got Pfizer. Pfizer. Okay. I'm getting my second Pfizer on Saturday. Did you have any uh, side effects after your second dose? No. I mean, surprisingly, my arm, you know, the first dose, my, my arm was pretty sore. But this round, I'm, you know, I'm not really sore at all. I, I am really tired, but that could just be allergies. It could be... It could be a lot of things, but I feel, you know, I feel fine. 
Yeah, it, it's, you know, social media doesn't help because it makes it sound like everyone who, you know, everyone has had a bad reaction to the to the second uh, mm-hmm. to the second Pfizer shot. Um, you know, of course, people are going to be more outspoken about when things go wrong than when they don't. Um, but uh, but a good reminder for myself and others that it's not always the case, I guess, after you get that second shot. It's not. And my, my husband got it, too, and he didn't really have symptoms either. I think a lot of people don't have symptoms. But like you said, when people do have those symptoms, we hear about it more. But, you know, it's 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 important because these vaccines, you know, they're, they're really safe, but they're they're still new. So it's interesting to me to hear from people, um, you know, like how they're reacting, what their experiences are like. Yeah. An amazing fact when we sit here today thinking about a year ago that here we are, you and I talking about getting getting, you know, fully vaccinated. Um, I don't know that it was a prediction we would have made a year ago when we were doing this podcast. Yeah, I think, you know, in the beginning, it, I I think, you know, I, I, I assumed that at some point we would get a vaccine, but it, it felt so distant and out of our grasp. So it, it is really, it was kind of cool to look back and, you know, I wish I could tell past me, hey, in a year from now, you'll be vaccinated. And, um, you know, a lot of people will be vaccinated. I think that could have, you know, provided some comfort. So. Yeah. It's been it's been an interesting year for sure. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can find all other episodes by subscribing to the Listen Frontier podcast feed in your favorite podcast app. You can also find links to episodes and all our other journalism at readfrontier.org. For the Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for joining us. I'll be back with you next week.